inspiration, enlightenment, and insight on how to get what you want and how to keep it. We could have been anything that we wanted to be. And it's not too late to change it. We'd be delighted to give it some thought. Maybe you'll agree that we really ought to. And now, here are your hosts, Paul Williams and Tracy Jackson. Good morning, Tracy Jackson. And Paul Williams. Welcome to the Paul Williams and Tracy Jackson podcast, formerly Gratitude and Trust. Are you welcoming me or our guest? Yeah, you know what? Well, we should take this time actually to thank our, our listeners. We, we should we, thank You know, them. I listen to a lot of podcasts and everyone always thanks their listeners and we don't. So, listeners... Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for uploading, downloading. And thank you for telling your friends. That's, yeah. you know, because as we grow... Or your it, enemies. You know, yeah, you can yeah, tell your tell enemies. Your, so your enemies. enemies can listen to us, too. That's we'll not a bad thing. We'll make them better people. We will maybe make you... We might, we might bring you back together. We could, we could maybe, we could maybe you know, sort of mend broken friendships. Yeah, yeah. We could be like mediators. Learned, mediators you know, over the air. Your ex-wife, you, you glare at each other when you drop off the kids. Hey, maybe not if you listen to... Paul and Tracy, and if you read Gratitude and Trust, our book, all of a sudden you may lo- be looking at the mother of your children going, hello, darling. That's, I want you back. <laughs> I, I want you. No, well, let's not go that far. <laughs> what are, you, are you binge watching these days? I read this great article. No, you do. You're the binge walker. You know, you go Mad Men, and then you go, uh, the, what's the one with Kevin... Well, that's that's I, well, I I do I with Kevin uh, with Ke- yes Kevin Spacey I watch yeah. but it's not on right now. Um, I got you tickets House to see cars. him in, in London because you had been binge watching. You'd been plopped down in front of your your screen for like three days watching it, that series. Well, I read this article in the New York Times the other day that talked about how couples now, when couples get together, what they talk about is binge watching. It's become the it's become the talking point because people don't go to movies as much and everybody's got. Everyone's streaming, and single people don't do it because it, you don't really binge watch. You can binge watch on your own, but single people who are dating really single can't people binge. have porn. Well, yeah, they, they have porn maybe. <laughs> but when so the other day we were having lunch with uh, my my husband and I were having lunch with the writer Judy Bloom, really famous writer. It you know, lives in Florida. Yeah, written you know an iconic character. We don't like to say that, but for it started really the YA revolution for yeah. young people's books. And we sat down to lunch. The first thing we started talking about is what are you watching? You know, uh, she was watching Ray Donovan. I was watching Transparent, which is have you you've got to watch Transparent, Paul? Yeah, especially. Oh my God, Jeffrey yeah. Tambor. Jeffrey Tambor just takes your breath away the whole show. So, and I started because it's there's this thing about binge watching when you're married. Well, you because you and your wife watch different stuff. You don't really watch the same. I stuff like forensic know. files. I like one yeah. one bloody murder after another. No. I mean, it's, it's but, as far you know, away from the Rainbow Connection as like. <laughs> Glenn and I binge together, but if I watch something without him, I feel like I'm cheating on him somehow. Like. I, I'm now rewatching Mad Men because we watched it together. I can do it by myself. Uh-huh. But I started watching Transparent and just on my computer because the WJ sent it to me. And so I was there. And I, it was right, I think it was right after the, the Emmys. And I thought, I've got to watch this show. I mean, anything this, this touted and this acclaimed. So I just was watching it on my computer and I just watched one and then I watched two and then I watched three and then I watched four and then Lucy started yelling where's dinner and I'm like and Glenn came home and said what do you I said I first watched five episodes of Transparent In a and row. you know it's, well, it's like I told him I cheated on him or something because what do you mean you watched it without me yeah. I went, well you weren't here and it was my computer does that count if it's not TV so we went back and then I watched the beginnings with him and then watched the whole thing again like in a period of two days watched all of them 
It will enlarge. That will enlarge your your empathetic soul. Though watching that a series like that, one after I'm, another, and all. Well, no, I just I you know I just I love and I binge with Taylor. I binge watch. Um, what Taylor and I binge watch Friday Night Lights. I, every member of my family and I binge watch something together. We all have some play, but you don't binge watch. No, I don't. Why? I don't. Because it, it interrupts so me watching fun. golf in my underwear. You know that. Oh my god! <laughs> like, you you haven't watched all of Mad Men. Yeah, I haven't watched all of. You know, it's. Uh, I, I mean, I. Uh, no, I don't. I just don't. I'm, I'm sorry, you know. But one of the nice things is is that after everybody's watched something and they get all excited about something and then a couple of decades pass, all of a sudden I will find something and I, and I, and I light up with just the pure joy. A classic example. The my Honeymooners, dinner, my you're dinner, not watching The Honeymooners? My Dinner with Andre. I watched My Dinner with Andre the morning that we did, uh, that we did our, our, you know, as people know, we sometimes we do these intros. The person we're doing today. When, like what we're doing today. We're, we're doing an intro right now for somebody that we spoke to oh, a couple weeks ago or a Indeed. week ago, 10 we days did. ago, whatever. But it was amazing because the morning that, that I sat down and we talked with Wally Shawn, the wonderful actor Wally Shawn, I watched probably one of his, his greatest triumphs as an actor, My Dinner with Andre. And it was like, I, I it was totally fresh with me. I mean, right. I was just an absolute gurn when I when he walked in the room. I wanted to just jump in his lap and go, you are fantastic. 30 years after exactly. the fact. Exactly. So I'll watch Mad Men when I'm in, in, my, in, my, in my 90s. In yeah. your 90s, you'll watch yeah. Mad Men? Yeah. I like mean, 30 years, we're talking about three digits on the driver's license. I may not get there, but... Uh, so, so, so someone will tell you what's going on. Don Draper just took a drink. Well, no, to Today we are, Wally Shawn is an extraordinary character, and he is our guest today. Wally Shawn started as a playwright. I remember in 1985 yeah. seeing his play Aunt Dan and Lemon at the Public Theater, which I think was his first play that was done there. He has gone on and done, he, he has this very interesting career, because on one hand he's this very esoteric, intellectual, enigmatic playwright, uh, and on the other hand he... <sighs> He's been in things, the kids know him. I mean, my kid, him from Gossip Girl, Clueless. He walks down the street, the people all know him from sure. Clueless, he, the voice in Toys. He's got this, so he's got this really commercial career. And then he has this very intellectual creative career. He's about to start, um, he's about to start next month. He goes to London to the National Theater. To do and it's one of those people that if, if you're sitting there and you don't know who the name Wally Shawn is, if if you know if you jump, you know if you look at at either at Gratitude Trust or our uh, you know our, our Twitter call, you know Twitter Twitter page for uh, you want to take two uh, and do that or, again or <laughs> at I am Paul Williams or or Tracy Jackson for you we'll put a, we'll have his picture up and when you see his face you'll go oh my God I've loved him for years he's so good he's so good we should let people meet uh, Wally Shawn. We can introduce. We will just. We're just rolling. We're just rolling here, and we'll have introduced this already. We're just rolling here today with, with Wally Sean. Hi, Wally. Hi. Wally is as you know. I was just asking Wally about what it's like to walk down the street because you've done so many films. You have such a recognizable face, you know, and. And there's an excess. There's something about you that even no matter how grumpy the part you're playing, there's something very accessible about you. So I would imagine that people approach you with, even though you are a, a quote a star and a celebrity, they approach you with this sort of "Yo, where you been?" kind of attitude. Well, a lot of people do uh, laugh <laughs> when, they, they, when they see me. I can't completely interpret that. Uh, 
I don't know why, but uh, a lot of people, the very thought of seeing me is makes them laugh, and it's funny. And uh, if I'm in a good mood, that's okay. Yeah. And if I'm in a bad mood, it can uh, come across as mockery. And uh, I... Uh, I'm very well aware that uh, people always remember bad encounters with actors because people tell me about their bad encounters with actors if they have them. Uh, they remember them for decades. Yeah, that becomes your brand. Uh, people say, you know, 20 years ago I was in Toledo and I met... X, and I went up to him and I said, I really like your show. And he said, look, I'm just trying to take a walk today. And they're bitter about it for the rest of their lives. So I try my best to be, uh, you know, friendly. Do you suppose that that laugh is, is born out of a sense of comfort, that there's something in the, your performance and your persona <laughs> that they perceive as approachable, friendly, uh, safe, and that's, that's maybe what inspires that response? Well, I think I am considered, uh, this is just a lifelong characteristic, safe and harmless. Uh, and uh, certainly, uh, yeah, there are people who... Uh, Note a sort of low level of uh, testosterone or um, maleness in me and uh, feel safe and that uh, I don't fit the... They can sense that I don't fit the profile of an aggressive rapist. Um, <laughs> It's funny, uh, that's the way I've always seen you. Do you think it has to do, I mean, I was I mean, it's, it's tragic in a way to be harmless. You'd rather be menacing? Uh, I don't really want to be menacing either. I, uh, uh, sad to be harmless, but I accept that. And I'd rather be harmless than menacing, or uh, I'm glad that God did not fill my veins with testosterone so that I don't go into a restaurant and laugh in that horrible way that men who have been overfed on that chemical do. <laughs> do you think, I don't want to stereotype both of you sitting here. We're both but you're five both, foot but two. You're both Just five to, foot for two. those of you who, who are not can't see Just us, we're, we're not video. Two, two small men who They're, are really attractive. This is the first time we've actually had someone in the studio that's exactly Paul's height. Who's a yeah. and I have and people for this up, moment and, uh, for, for years. And people, I'm, I spend a lot of time on the road with Paul, and people walk up to Paul without any compunction whatsoever. And I've been with other people who were. Truly famous. I mean, I dated Anthony Quinn's son for a while, sadly the one who died, Frankie. And you'd walk down the street with Anthony Quinn, and people would stare. I mean, I'm trying to name all the really famous people I know that I spent time with, but a lot of them. But And, and Robert Mitchum. And I spent a lot of time with Robert Mitchum, too. And people wouldn't just come up 
and invade that space. People would look at a Mitchum or an Anthony Quinn or these heavily testosterone kind of guys. I mean, I suppose maybe you'd say to Alec Baldwin, you would maybe just walk up to Alec Baldwin and say, will you take a selfie with me? I don't know. Um, when I've met Alec Baldwin, he's been very friendly. But but I wonder if that's part of it, if it, there is, when you say about the testosterone, but there's also a size element and a kind of these macho, overly macho guys. What are they going to do if I come up? Well, I do think that uh, in a certain world, being small means that you're harmless and likable and sort of pet-like and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, in the right company, I've always hoped for that. Actually, <laughs> but I, I, I do. Uh, yes, obviously, I don't intimidate anybody. But I, I, well, I may be this bad luck to say this, but I think now I've said that I'm going to say it. I've, I don't know who listens to your podcast, but I, I mean, I'm just going to say it. Go ahead, I have, Molly. I have never been beaten up. And I've never been in a fight. And I think in the world that I have moved in, uh, someone who is my size is just not likely to uh, get beaten up. But I said that recently to a friend who had grown up in a uh, uh, rougher background. And they said that uh, in their neighborhood, the short guy's... We're beating up all the time, or they or they learn to hit first. I mean, there's. I went to nine schools by the time I was in the ninth grade, and I think it prepared me for approaching the world in, in a very different fashion. You know, to to almost uh, uh, to portray a bit of a of willingness to be aggressive at the drop of a hat, and try to control the environment that happened to me. And I hit a kid in the forehead one time, or the temple rather, with a salt shaker. Because I knew I was going to be in a fight with him, and, I, and it had to be done. I had to shoot, hit first, and I had to hit in a place where there were a lot of people that would stop the fight before he beat me to death because he would have beaten me to death. Now, as far as intimidation is concerned, this may have never occurred to you, but the first time I saw you in person was walking by a theater, and you were standing out front. I was with Tracy and her husband, Glenn. And it it's the there's some little place in the back of me that it always feels in New York like it like like I'm from Omaha, Nebraska, and I would say that I but was you are in from fact Omaha, I am from Omaha I, exactly. <laughs> but I looked at you, and based on on what you project, actually what I found that by by reading about your life later and looking at your knowing your work and all, but what you project is a confidence and an intellect that I found intimidating. So I found myself, you know, all of a sudden in, in, in a place, you know, where, you know, uh, you know, I just watched you and, and Andre going through DVDs together. And there's this wonderful little thing where, you know, uh, uh, on YouTube of the two of you looking at, in, a, in a room full of DVDs and you're talking about, oh, my God, how could you live your life without this? And you're mentioning directors and, and films that I have never heard of. So I'm at a place in my life where there's there's a lot of my life that is beginning and opening up for me right now. I will probably I don't know when this has happened to you, but last night and this morning, excuse me, not last night, this morning, I saw my dinner with Andre. So I'm sitting Wally here. Wally hasn't seen it yet. <laughs> I I'm sitting here right now, having experienced a mo there's a moment in my dinner with Andre. When you're talking about other cast members, when you when you get your your costume, the cat costume, 
and just this this tsunami of negative information that is being tossed at you like oh i had to wear earmuffs in a, in a film one time and i couldn't hear a damn thing or oh with a mask on i couldn't see anything and everything sounded different it's just and they're just gleefully pouring all this you know and the impact of that moment to be sitting with you right here having seen that having watched a film where at the very beginning of the film i like putting on a coat took on your angst so i sat there with 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 you listening to andre babylon feeling like an absolute outsider like i almost felt you felt in that moment and then watching you rise up with and express your opinion to him about this insanity of what he's going to and how you love your life and all i am totally at at a moment where you know i miss the 80s because i was drunk for the 80s when and, and that film came out in 1981 but i can sit here right now and tell you that you tower in your talent and i can say it and mean it because i just experienced something that is that is monumental in your work what can I say? Uh, you're so... Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank it's, you. Uh, and I love uh, the fact that I'd never seen it before, and that I got to see it this morning. That's fantastic. It's just... I, so yeah. I'm sitting with somebody, that I that, and I can't put my arms around you because you got a cold, but I would if I could, you know? Otherwise, yeah. we would be having boy hugs here Yeah, today. we'd have major boy hugs. Yeah, it's... Um, well, being intimidating in in a uh, you know, I was raised in a uh, you know private school silver spoon type of situation, and yeah, there's a kind of intellectual snobbery or arrogance that is uh, you know branded into my skin. I mean, that can't be removed. So. I would give anything to uh, be able to lose that, but I think it's impossible. Would you really? Yeah. In other words, In what regard? Well, I think that, uh, well, this is... The legacy of what you come from or just what the the imprint it left in having to sort of reach that level all the time of the people you were around? I mean, was there a sense... Was there a sense when you were growing up that you... Because both you and brother are, are both very accomplished. But was there a sense that you had to reach a certain height intellectually? I mean, you weren't going to go out and play football, but if you had, probably that wouldn't have been acceptable either, right? I mean, that Well, I, I, I wasn't really thinking of that. I was thinking of the fact that, um, to use a silly example, that I've that made a big impression on me for some reason I can't explain. I was in Cuernavaca, Mexico, and I went to a movie. This was decades ago. And I'd never been to a movie in Mexico. And uh, I can't quite describe how the people entered the theater, but they were sort of pushed in when it was time to begin the film. And there, there were... A few hundred people, I had this powerful sense that they just landed in the seat that they were put in, and they each person didn't seem to feel, I am special. I am one of the most important people on the planet, and I deserve the best seat. Or I even deserve a seat that would appeal to me. They just sort of piled in, 
And I had the feeling that they didn't have those thoughts. Uh, and I was then sensitized to that. And when I would see uh, people from my own country walking around in Mexico, I was amazed by how each of them seemed to me to be thinking, ah, yes, I am wearing the clothes that I have chosen to be the most magnificent because I am the most magnificent person in this little town and I'm walking down the street and it's terribly important. Whereas the people in the movie theater were sort of all dressed very, very similarly. The white of Mexico, the white linen. <laughs> Don't you think that's a socioeconomic yes, concept I mean, more than it is anything else and more than it is intellectual? I mean, I mean, you had you obviously had you grew up in a in the Upper East Side of New York and in a very intellectually advanced household and in a in a culture in a and in a privileged house. I grew up privileged too. I didn't grow up privileged um, in New York, but I was always exposed to a lot of of. You know, everyone was successful. Everyone was writers. Everyone was directors. You know, everyone sort of had... And you do grow up with this sense of everyone's done something. Everyone does something. Everyone has something. And it's reflected... I know in my own work, even people have always said to me, well, I don't, I can't really relate to her lifestyle or I can't really relate to where she's coming from, but I can relate to what she says. And I always find that to be kind of both offensive and confusing because if it's an if it's a universal emotion it's a universal emotion does it matter if you grew up how you grew up but it's also this it, it's i don't know any other way to think and i think that's almost what you were saying before i mean you you get that you grew up in a certain way you don't know any other way to relate to the world no matter how many experiences you have you kind of go back to that set point yeah don't you find that's true though and you don't do it out of malice or of being a snob because you are so far from a snob wally i mean you don't live in a fancy way you don't travel and you know i mean I, I know you you know you're not a you're not a fancy guy right in the in the in, with those sort of certain trappings intellectually maybe fancy but if that's a concept but i do think that it just sticks with you how you grow up in that way you you really can't uh, get away from it now not to duck your earlier question that you asked me, were there high expectations, Yeah, you know, for me and my brother? Obviously, uh, there were uh, brutally high moral expectations, that's for sure. Uh, sleaziness and shortcuts, cheating, lying, these were brutally looked down upon and we didn't get into them because it would be too terrifying. Uh, I, you know, really have never, I never took the risk of really uh, defying my parents or even disagreeing with them practically. I was rude to my mother for a couple of years in there when I was 13 and 14. But I never truly, uh, you know, rebelled or did terrifying things that would terrify them. I mean, I, I, uh, I rather excitedly told my parents about the wonders that I was told about in school when I was, I mean, in college, I was 21, and I came home, and I said, you know, uh, this is incredible. You know, I've learned that we only use 5% of our brains, 
And there's this incredible drug, LSD, that we can take and we can expand our consciousness and use all of our brains. And um, my, my father said, well, Wallace, I think that would be inadvisable. <laughs> uh, You'll wind up staring at your cuticles for six hours. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I... I uh, I sort of thought, oh, well, if he thinks it's inadvisable. Did you try it? No. Never. I never have. I haven't either, Wally. I mean, I... I, <laughs> I uh, Polly did it for both of us. Yeah, I did it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I... I uh, those who... Well, I was very close to one person who, you could say... Then never come back and was insane for the rest of her life. And but I've known many others who've said that it benefited them enormously and uh, that it was great. It was it was something of a spiritual awakening for me. And there were other drugs that I, that became just simply, uh, you know, they started out as as just just pure hedonistic pleasure seeking, and then became. Uh, then became a yoke that I bore from, you know, a, a brief chemical experiment with cocaine that lasted from 1967 to 1989. But other oh than God. that, I was... <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder what the psychological makeup of a child, an offspring is, who does respond, and I responded like you did, to to my mother. I wasn't raised with my father. But my mother was adamant that I never do drugs. It was adamant that I, I never broke rules. I mean, I didn't have a lot, but any rule I had, I would never think of breaking. I would never think of challenging. And, and I, and I probably that way in many ways to this day, I probably rebel in different ways that, that appall my parents. But I wonder what it is because there are kids who have those same kinds of parents and we know them and they go the exact opposite extreme. Yes. Well, there was, I mean, my parents were totally nice to me. I mean, I had no reason to uh, be resentful of them, quite the contrary. So uh, it wasn't fear alone. It was also affection that uh, kept me so well behaved uh, and example because they were incredibly well-behaved, although my father was uh, intellectually courageous and he, he, uh, he, I mean, for the benefit of your listeners, he was the editor of the New Yorker magazine and he... An iconic figure. He yes. published uh, things that were very, very, very daring uh to publish outrageously so uh, such as well he he Wally. published uh, James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time yes. which was at the time which I think was 1963 maybe yeah. very maybe it was 61 it was very 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 Early on. surprising to the white people who were reading it he published Silent Spring by Rachel Carson which was Shocking and even considered insane uh, at that time. She was. It was the really 
introduction for most people to environmental thinking and an attack on the chemical industry. And and he also published uh, pieces uh, uh, critical of Israel before it was thinkable to do that. Uh, he published Eichmann in Jerusalem by Hannah Arendt, and he and and uh, he wrote about you know his. Uh, Jakob Timmermann wrote about the massacres in uh, the war in Lebanon led by Ariel Sharon. And these things were horrifying to not just people he didn't know, but to people he knew and to his own colleagues at the office. So he was courageous in that way. And I hope that I, in a tiny, tiny way, I've tried to take some risks in my life, but sort of, I've never really paid a price for it, so I could say that I haven't, uh, uh, you know, I don't have a very high opinion of my courage. You've taken I, a lot I of would, risks in your work, though, Wally. Yeah, yeah, I, I, think, how, I want to ask you a question, that, and, and it'll bleed into your work a, a second, because I, and it was something I didn't know about you, and it's something that we share, which... You went to India. I mean, here you are. You know, you paint yourself as this rather—I wouldn't even want to say timid—kid, and you didn't cause any trouble. And you went to your school, and you lived in a, you know, an expansive intellectual environment, but probably a slightly humid physical environment in terms of experience, right? So you talk about the Mexico story, but you went off and you taught in India when nobody was going to India. Well, I did go to India before the Beatles, that's for sure. I mean, what? First well, of all, so we'll talk about, to put on you, talk on your headstone, about, for God's sake. You know. what's, what compelled you to do that, number one? And what was that like for you? Well, I was, uh, at as a student in college, I was uh, planning to become a, some kind of a diplomat or a civil servant, maybe work at the UN type of thing. And I... Uh, I'd always wanted to, you know, I'd always not even, I'd always assumed that I would do something in the artistic world. And I, my, all my thoughts until I was about 16 were in an artistic direction uh, or a literary, if you count words as being artistic, a literary direction. Um, but then I changed and I decided that was immoral and that uh, I should devote myself to helping the sufferings of humanity. And I thought India would be the most miserable place on earth. It had that reputation at that time, 1965, somewhat the way people would speak of Africa today. And uh, so I went there. I was very happy there happier than I'd ever been, and, uh, well, I was in love with India, really, and I, uh, by the time that my year there was up, uh, well, I, I would have stayed, but uh, paradoxically, I would have uh, been drafted into the U.S. Army and sent to Vietnam 
to fight uh, against the Vietnamese. I was against that war. You would have been drafted if you'd stayed in India? If I'd stayed in India, I would have been drafted. So I didn't, uh, I, I didn't want to stay. Otherwise, I would have stayed. But by the end of the year, I had had a bit of a rethink of my whole life. And uh, for complicated reasons, I gave myself permission to, to be a writer if I wanted to because uh, I had uh, my preconceptions were flatly obviously wrong. The idea that uh, I should devote my life to helping India to become more like America was uh, somehow there was something wrong there because when I went to India, I, I, I thought it was so wonderful, <laughs> not that there were not people who were suffering there, but I didn't sort of think, oh, well, if only this place could be like America. On the contrary, I sort of thought, wait a minute, the place that I've come from is, is sort of uh, very uh, twisted, distorted, wrong. And engaged in a war at that time, which we, you know, we found abhorrent, as I did too and all that. Incidentally, they would have made us tunnel rats, Wally, if I, that's what I was informed of. Really? That I was... I always thought I was under the fi the height minimum because I was slightly under five foot two. And when I found out it was five foot, I actually got under a hundred pounds to avoid going. And in, in, I I detested what we were doing in Vietnam. I love our troops. I have great. I you know bless their hearts and let's take care of them. And, and certainly the the vets that are, that are being so horribly treated right now oh need to be God. properly cared for. Yeah, but my God, it was do. a war that I that I detested. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was. Uh... It's so bad that we can't even take it in, what we did. It's yeah. so bad that yeah. we can't even, if we thought about it for two minutes, it would be unbearable. So we actually don't think about it. And I think the Vietnamese have, have decided to have some very strange attitude of forgetting also. They, you know, we were in, have you been to Vietnam? I haven't. We were, and I spent a lot of time in India, and I wanted, that's why I want, because I've, I didn't, I went in 79, and then I went back, I think, every year for 15 years from, in the 90s to 2000. So I have a huge, I under, and I understand when you say how India, you fall in love with India. Have you been back? I've never been back. Oh, you have to go back, I've Wally. never been there. I mean, it, do, it changes your life. I do think India changes the way you think forever. About Even if it changes you to the point where you go, okay, I'm going to go do this other thing. But it totally changes the way you... You can't look at yourself ever again in the same way when you've spent time in India. Oh, I think it, and it, God it, it, only knows what India was like in 65. I mean, I know when I went in 79 compared to when I went back then in the early 90s. And now when you go back, it's you can't even... You would never know it. But in 65, it just must have been... Well, there were definitely, you know, the place I was. Where were, were you, Wally? I was in Indore in Madhya Pradesh. Yeah, and, so you weren't even uh, in Delhi or Bombay no, then. No, but there were definitely, uh, I think you could say there were more cows and pigs in the street than cars, certainly. I remember arriving at the airport in the middle of the night, and I'd always wanted to go First to time, India. Mean. First time, 79, 78, and I'd always wanted to go to India. Since I was a child, and I don't know why, I just always in my something was always whispering in my ear, India. 
And we got off the plane, and it wasn't the big airport that's there now. It was a smaller airport. And there were all these men came out, and everyone was wrapped up, and it was freezing. It was Delhi in the winter. And they were all sitting around these open fires. And all in the streets was nothing but people sitting around open fires, these dark, dark men, and all wrapped up. And it was like you had time traveled. It was like you traveled to another. I mean, now it would be almost like some sort of supernatural TV show. It was unbelievable. And at the same time, I was horrified and terrified. I fell in love with it. It it just, there was, it just, it just shakes you by your core. I think, I think it also was the beginnings of your introduction to the deity Delhi because it's, No, not then was it. It was just this, this, this other world that makes you totally, you can't look at your own world in the same way. It's that this world exists. But in, in what you say about Vietnam, we were in, we went to Vietnam about two or three years, three, three years ago. And we were in what now you have to say Ho Chi Minh City, be proper about it. And you know, they take you on the tours of the of the tunnels of the Chuchu tun- of the tunnels, and they take you back to all of the places where the battles were fought. And everyone speaks English, and they they tell you all about the terrible Americans and what the terrible Americans did while they're smiling and selling you Coca Cola and telling you they accept dollars and being completely friendly. And they're all so young that it's almost like you know my generation talking about World War II. They have no recollection whatsoever. Yeah. To them, it is this historical thing that happened, and now there's this prosperity, and they don't have the, this generation. I mean, I've never been in a country in Asia that takes dollars as readily as the Vietnamese. Yeah. You know, and, and who is as sort of linked into the Western way of thinking as the, well, certainly the Vietnamese. And you go to Da Nang, and I remember Da Nang, and that was the place one remembers hearing about all the time. You know, Da Nang is now one big fancy hotel after another. You know, it's this great resort. And they and say it's, the best it's, beaches in the world. And, the best, and the, the, best, the best resort I've ever been to. And when I just remember watching Truth or Consequences as a kid, and they'd bring these kids back, and they'd say, so-and-so's son has just come back from Da Nang, and the mother would cry. And all I remember thinking is, he's only home for a day. I had this some sort of weird thing about abandonment <laughs> even then. But it was really interesting that, that, that now, yeah, the Vietnamese, they don't. You know, I don't know what the older generation thinks, but certainly the present generation just thinks of it as someone that brings in a lot of money now. Yeah, maybe. But but it's interesting, for instance, in Greece, when they began to feel that the Germans were going to be controlling their destiny, a lot of little memories seemed to come back. There was a bitterness that uh, leaped over time. I think, well, look what look what happened in Hungary last week when they started writing people's numbers on this on the Serbians hands yeah. look what that ignited I mean there you know is... I mean there are, you don't forget I mean you know I think when something alarming happens this reminiscent yeah but the... last week do you remember when when they started writing on the Serbians hands they put them in the in the wrong in the, in the trains and, no well they put them in the trains and they sent them to the different place and they started marking them and it was all of a sudden yeah wait a minute <laughs> yeah right yeah. absolutely. <laughs> Well, on another subject, you know, your you know your remarkable career as a, as an actor really be you turned to writing first. Did you start acting because you began working in your own plays? Uh, well, a guy offered me a part in one of my own plays, not a play that I wrote, but a play I translated from Italian, and a uh, a director offered me a part in it, and. Uh, but I'd been writing for ten years before that, and and uh, you know I I uh, 
took the part because he he offered to pay me $125 a week. And uh, it... uh, I had never figured out, you know, uh, how to make a living. And that put off the choice for a little while. And uh, because I knew... I'd already had a couple of plays performed and and even won a prize. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I could see that the type of writing that I like to do would never earn any money. And I didn't even at that time know... I just was beginning to be familiar with the word bourgeois, which one of the actors in the play used a lot. And I realized that there was such a thing as a bourgeois point of view, sort of. I was. It took several years to comprehend the word, but I. I didn't think consciously. I must have a bourgeois level of comfort. I require that. I'm addicted to that. I need that. I didn't really think about it. I just thought, oh, there are bills. And I've borrowed money again from my friend. But can that go on forever? Maybe not. (laughs) You know. uh, And somehow it winds up as the electric blanket at the end of my dinner with Andre. It becomes a symbol. Yeah. Of comfort is comfort, uh, you know, uh, the enemy of art is, you know. But you never wrote, pl- and I remember, I mean, I remember the first, well, the first play I saw of yours was Aunt Dan and Lemon, I remember, at, at the public. Really? Yeah. In 85? Yeah. Wow. Um, I didn't when, you, I'm sorry, what, Aunt, when Wally's produced what was the play? Aunt Dan and Lemon, which was, I mean, would you say that was the play that kind of put you on the map in terms of the public's? Consciousness. Well, I, I don't think I'm on the map. It was a little bit <laughs> higher. I mean, Frank Rich gave that play. He was the New York Times know, critic sure. at the time, for the benefit of your younger that's our younger listeners, listeners or people who couldn't care less about the New York Times. Frank Rich was the critic of the New York Times. He was much more powerful than any other critic. He was a very smart man and. Uh, he he praised that play highly, and I I did rise up to kind of a great height for a little while there, but then he condemned my next play, and uh, I'm not saying he controlled my life exactly, but but I I didn't quite I think that was the high point of you know vague public awareness of my writing. Uh, and uh, and it kind of faded out again. But, uh, yeah. But there was a group of people, and I suppose there still is, but it's different because the economics have changed so dramatically since then in terms of putting you, even putting on a play. When you consider what off off Broadway was like in the '80s, or that an actor could, when I came to New York to be an actress, you could support yourself. I, mean, I also went to HB, so I had this. But when you talk about and I, I for years, I actually taught at HB for ten years as an adult. I went back and taught screenwriting at HB because they had no writing. It was so when I read the thing that you'd gone to HB and you didn't take a writing class, but I when I became a writer, it was be, 
I gave the credit for everything I knew about structure and character to working for 10 years with Herbert. I felt that I learned everything I needed, to, and I never took a writing class. So I was everything I learned from Herbert about character wow. went into my work. So when I read that you went to HB and went to the basement and they didn't have writing, so you took acting and you wanted to f- find what, out what actors do, I well, thought that I, I was such a great... Well, you didn't want, you want a writing class, right? You just... I, I went to the HB studio because I was already a writer and I wanted to learn about acting to learn what acting is, because that was the the cliché of the time. And I, I think it's quite true that if you want to write plays, you should, uh, you should know what acting is. Uh, and uh, so I went to the office. I said, I don't want to be an actor. I just... Uh, wanted to study what acting is. I wanted to take a class of some description. Well, I, I took a lot of classes. I was, I was sort of full-time at the HB studio. And uh, I took, you know, obviously not that much, or I wouldn't be the sad little man I am today. I didn't take speech for years, only, you know, for a few months. So it's not their fault that I talk the way I do. <laughs> and I, I, I took, uh, you know, voice. I took movement. Uh, and I took acting. Who did you study acting with there? I, took, I studied with Catherine Sergeva. And uh, she was a fabulous uh, teacher. You had to catch on at that. I don't know if it's still true. I think it is. You could... Start at the HB studio any day of the year. They didn't have first term, second term, first day of the first term, second day of the first term. So it was eternal. Just a went living on. organism. It just was a living organism. It went on and on. A few cells would drop off. A few new ones would grow. But they didn't start at the beginning. So when I first went there... I didn't understand a word that Catherine Sergeva was talking about. She was using the language of acting, objectives, actions, the language that uh, Stanislavski uh, pioneered, let's say. I didn't understand a word at first, but I caught on, and she was great. I loved her. It was an extraordinary place. It was great. It was a great place. And then I went on and I, be, I went on the board and I taught there. And it was an adult. Yeah. As an adult, I felt I had to give back somehow, having had a career that I, you know, and, and I went back to teach. It's you great. remember, you came and spoke to one of my classes. I did speak to and, and I, but I, And I always remember, and it was so interesting when I was reading what you were saying about acting, because I didn't, I understood it I, intuitively, but I don't know that I ever could have put language to it. I mean, I understood that learning to be an actress, which I was not successful at being, but then I, could be a writer, but I remember used to, I used to tell students you have to give actors something to act. Yes, and everything to act is in subtext, and it was like trying to teach people subtext, which now on so many mediums doesn't mean anything, unfortunately, when you go to watch a lot of things. But you know, but that subtext was all an, a good actor could ever really glom onto, and that was somehow teaching them how to be subtle. You know. Yeah. Subtlety having gone some direction, I don't know where, in many forms of entertainment. But in that time, that was really something that was so that Herbert Berghoff just drilled into you. Yeah. It's what is beneath the language? What is the action? It's a great—it was—I mean, it's cheap. 
I think it's always been an oh, inexpensive the, school. It cost me to teach there, trust me. I mean, you have to just, you, you, I mean, I tell people probably every week somebody asks me, how can I become an actor? And I tell them to go to the HP studio. And I, it's, it's something that uh, is, uh, you know, not expensive. You can go for one class. Yeah, no, they, they, and they kept it very cheap. But they, and unfortunately, after Herbert and Uta died, they also kept it very... It, I mean, it's not nice of me to say on the air. It's not... And I was on the board for a long time. But it, it's, it didn't catch up to the times. And what, was, what worked in those days, and maybe it's better now, but what worked in those days, it, it needed to be enhanced because it just... Times, times moved on, and actors just couldn't come to New York... I mean, when I came to New York in the early '80s, you could be a waiter, you could write off, you could be in a couple off off Broadway plays, you could live on the Upper West Side, yeah, and you could support yourself. Sure, you can't do that today no. because who's in off Broadway plays? Famous people. You, you know what I mean? I mean, who's there? there there's not that fourth tier where you can kind of make your way to the third tier to David the second tier you, you, you <laughs> exactly but you can't do it anywhere david pierce a big fan of hb but you can't move up in that same way that you once did no, and i don't know what you i mean i don't wouldn't know what to tell a young person today because it doesn't seem to it's a much harder environment in yeah. that way i mean to make your you, you can make your creativity i think found on youtube in places where the entry level's cheap i but, mean i don't rec- i mean i don't i've never met someone in Cedar Falls, Iowa, and said, you must go to New York and study at the HP studio. I'm talking about people who, are, who are already here and who say, I would like to be an actor. But and people I, used to come here from Cedar Falls oh, yes. and go to HB. That's, oh, I mean, you know, I, sure. I just remember that you, know, you came to New York at a certain point and you went to HB, you went to Stella Adler, you went to Stanford Meisner. I mean, you know, you went to you went to one of four places. Sure. And that, and they were all good. You just got something different out of each one. Yeah. From you and, know, from for me, I, I desperately wanted to be an actor, but it was a learn by doing situation. And when I look at my life, the amazing people I got to work with. My first film was The Loved One with Tony Richardson. I did The Chase with Arthur Penn. You know, I mean, there were some remarkable people I got to work with, and all. But what 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 as as I look back on the experience, to walk on a movie set is the most out of body, amazing Omaha fantasy come true <laughs> in, in, that 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 I could have experienced, because it's the lights. You're welcome. There's John Gilgood. There's Jonathan Winters. I mean, talk about the you know this collection of amazing people, and then to experience something you know where your task is to be as far away from that as possible, but to be within yourself, to relate to what's going on, the, you know, the action, the task, the, the whatever. Uh, and, I, and I don't think I thought about any of it. For years and years, I just, it was, learned, it was like being a parent. You learn by doing, you know. You yeah. just sort of dive in. Uh, I, maybe I should start studying. Is it too late? Never, no. never too late. I think <laughs> no. it's fun. I'd love to. I think Austin Pendleton still teaches Austin is still there. Oh. And that was it, you know, of the old school. Everyone kind of went, died down off. You know, Bill Hickey, yeah. Austin, Edward Morehouse. There are all these, you know, Eli Wallach and Ann Jackson. They all taught, and the people that taught there were, for the price, it was the greatest buy in the world. I think yeah. for, when I went, like $10 a class. And when I went, I took a special course you had to audition for. My, our, our mutual friend Mike Nichols taught it, Horton Foote taught it. You know, they had these just extraordinary talents that would come yeah. down and teach there just yeah. for the, and it was the love of the craft 
What do you feel about that? The love of the craft and what's gotten lost in our society of instant fame and America's Got Talent. And, you know, there was a time when it was just do it and do it well that people really cared about for a long. Don't you think? And maybe when success would hopefully come. But there was a process of learning to do it and do it well. I just... I, you don't I, remember that? I, uh, I'm John Carradine, and I remember that. I'm sorry. <laughs> just, just me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just... Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, say that I know whether you're right or wrong about it. I mean, the, the uh, young actors that I have met uh, and that I've worked with, uh, I would say are on a higher plane or they're certainly not on a lower plane than the people that I remember from many decades ago. I would say, I would say on a slightly higher plane, they're pretty serious, but I, I, uh, but you work in a very serious world. I mean, you're in your plays. Yeah. I think the people maybe that I, uh, well, but even, uh, you know, uh, working in, I mean, not to claim that I'm still in demand, but I do sometimes work. Oh, you work and, a lot. We haven't t- uh, even talked about that. You know, I meet younger actors, and uh, I would... Uh, Say I'm in awe of an awful lot of the people I meet. Really. Oh no, I, I'm not. I, I think I said that wrong. I'm not. I'm not questioning the talent. I think it's the, the length of time it takes sometimes to, to really. Well, you, you, and you've talked about this. You'll take ten years to write a play. Well, that was my longest time that I took, but I did. And, Most and, of them have been five. And which is still, a, it's a hunk of time. It is. It's a hunk of time. Whereas now there's a lot of, you know, even with book deals now, you used to get five years to write a book. Now they want you to write a book in one year. I think because of the how fast technology is, people. so I think what I was really saying is people came and they expected it to take X amount of years to build a career and get good. Not that people are any better or worse. It's just I think talent is talent, and talent does eventually come to the surface. But how long does it take to learn your craft and be a waiter or how long does it take to write a good play? And I think that technology has amped up those expectations. I think that's true. I mean, they're also, I mean, for me, there was absolutely no idea that I could make a living writing plays. Today, I think there are quite a few people who are under the impression that maybe they can make a living writing plays because they can get commissions from different theaters and little prizes, and they can sort of cobble together a living without taking up another profession. But that can mean that they have to write those plays by a deadline and hand them in and I was never under any pressure to do that because nobody cared whether I wrote the plays or I didn't write them. I think the cost now of, of whether it's making a movie or, you know, I'm working right now with, with Guillermo del Toro and, and, and Gustavo Santolaya on Pan's Labyrinth for the stage. And we think about the cost of, of mounting a musical. Oh, at, really? At You're this, doing that? We're doing Pan's Labyrinth yeah, and all. Boy. 
And, you know, we had, we had Billy Bob Thornton as a guest a couple of weeks ago, who is, I think, a pure Renaissance man and so brilliant and all. He talk, talked about, the, you know, the, the, I think one of the things that Tracy asked him about was what it cost to make Sling Blade and could he get that made today? And he said, very frankly, he, he wasn't sure that he could, could manage to get the financing for a little, uh, that beautiful little film today as he did, what, 20 years ago? Well, or, I think it's yeah, more 30. So, but, yeah. but Sling Blade today would be a TV show. You know, I mean, that's that's the way that the I think the pendulum has swung. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a Sling Blade would be a TV show. I mean, so many things that were were plays or small indie films now, because TV is so character driven. I think ends up being a TV show. But I want to ask you, you the plays you've written, and and you admit this, you're they're very they're deeply intellectual. I mean, you you have this one side of your life which is deeply in your brain and in your intellect with these very interesting and oftentimes hard to grasp plays for some people would you say yes many people many people can't them. grasp all of your what you're doing because it's on such a high level and then you have your film career which is what people know you for my children their friends which is this completely highly commercial side to your career right it's i mean true. your films clueless gossip girl Star Trek, Princess. T- Toy Story. I mean, Wally, you've been in some of these enormously commercial ve- vehicles that's paid the bills very well, I'm sure. How do you grapple with those two sides of, of the Wally Sean persona? I'm too shallow to even think about it. <laughs> I don't think about it. I don't it. believe you. I don't mean, think in about other words, it. I, I really don't. Uh, uh, it's, I've been doing it for a long time. But you now. can go seamlessly from the master builder to Gossip Girl, and you don't think about it because those are that's a leap. Here's a diptych of two photographs that will probably shock you. I believe that's the two of us on the Star Trek series. Oh, my makeup was much less horrific yours than yours. Was only Mine took was, about all I had minutes. was a clitoris yeah. on my forehead, and you had this <laughs> full. Oh, that's very wonderful. Well, I should have to retweet that. I will. I I don't know. I mean, I I suppose that I uh, I just uh, I, I don't know. I I uh, do you judge it when you're on set? You do you think about it or you don't? You just kind of I, think. I, I mean, was thinking about Ibsen yesterday, and today I'm thinking about the, these young girls on the Upper East Side. Yeah, I mean, in other <laughs> words, uh, there. It's like. Well, I have uh, had the opportunity to go on many occasions to St. Louis to see the Circus Flora because I know people connected to it. It's and the Melendas, for example, the flying, are, the flying Melendas, the family uh, work in this circus. What can I say? They do things that are you know, mind-boggling and even absolutely impossible to comprehend. And people scream when they watch them because they do these trapeze acts that are so frightening and they take risks and some have died. Uh, That's what they do. That's their job. And they accept that. And they don't wake up every day in total shock about it. So my life for so long has, uh, 35 years, I have included in my life these uh, activities that are enjoyed by a lot of people. 
Now, mind you, when I was a kid, I was an absolutely fanatical reader of Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse, and I, I, I read an awful lot of Disney comic books, and I watched the Disney TV show, and I drew a lot of cartoons, and I thought, well, I would like to work for Walt Disney one day. And now I'm 71. I do work for Walt Disney. And uh, I do a slightly different job for Walt than the one I'd planned. I thought I would be a cartoonist. What are you doing for Walt these days? Well, I'm about to do Toy Story 4. Walt has been in all the Toy Story movies. I know that. So, I mean, I uh, have done an awful lot of cartoons. And uh, it's not like, uh, I don't know, that, that I was reading... Uncle Scrooge comics, and then I threw them violently in the trash when I first read Dostoevsky. <laughs> um, I think uh, I've always uh, had a certain enjoyment of uh, things that other people Popular you culture. can read. You can read. You can read the painted bird and Bambi and enjoy both. It's a, it's it, one does not. Deny oh no, and I'm not. I was never insinuating that at all. You know, I mean, I I just think it's I think it's amusing, actually, and I think it and I think it shows the many signs of you. Refreshing. But I was just wondering how it how you internalized it because because so much of the, your your creative output that comes from you is on a very high intellectual level. But then the, some of the things that you've chosen to work in are on a, say, lower intellectual level and a more pop culture level. I mean, they're really, I mean, a lot of them based for like teenage girls even, you know, which one wouldn't always. I mean, my daughter, Clueless, they see, when, when, when they found out I knew you, this was just extraordinary to them. You know, Wally Shaw. I mean, Clueless is in these girls' minds like... Generate and and now with Gossip Girl, you just kept, you kept the franchise going, <laughs> you know, and clever, so from generation clever. to generation. So and I find it, I find it endearing and amusing. And I just wondered how you how you metabolized it. That's all. That was that was in in making those choices. So you didn't go, oh screw you, Agent. What do you think? I mean, I'm I'm working on Uncle Vanya, and you want me to do Gossip Girl? You don't have that kind of. Uh, you're not judging the material at any point then. Well, and I, the paychecks are great. I do, uh, I do judge material, and uh, I, uh, I mean, I suppose that I take uh, quite a lot of secret pride in the things that I haven't done, and you know, you speak of the paychecks, but, but. Um, I have turned down an awful lot of money. If I were to say, oh, well, I'll do anything, I really could have made a lot of money with no effort. Would you have done a TV show? Would you do one now that you oh, watch TV? I don't have a TV, and I don't watch TV uh-huh. much because I don't have a TV. But I, And I've never had a TV, but I do watch... You know, I can watch on the computer if I particularly want to. 
Uh, but I, I uh, sure, I would be delighted to be in a TV show. If they'd asked me to be in Gossip Girl every week, I would have been thrilled. But uh, I, in my mind, there are things that that are nauseating to me that go too, that are too nauseating, and I, uh, I don't do those. And I, because I'm whatever you want to call me, a leftist. I don't do uh, commercials. And I've, when I say I could have made a lot of money very easily, uh, that's that's an area where being five foot two is not a problem at all. Commercials. Yeah, of course. And uh, I have, uh, what can I say? I've even, in recent months, even as low as I've sunk and pitiful as I may be, in recent months I've turned down a large sum of money, and I, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I have some there. So I don't. I think if you were to examine everything I've done critically, I love Gossip Girl, mind you. Watched right. all of it. And I was actually one of the people, I was going to write it originally. I was one of the two people who oh were supposed God. to write it um, when it was going to be a film. They oh. came to me and one other person when it was going to be a film. Oh, I mean, excuse me, I have no artistic you know, aspirations. I just will do it. I mean, I, and I, I've had a very different career than you have, but I was dying to do it. And uh, and then they decided it was going to be a TV show and they were very smart to, to do what they did. And they went with someone else and I did another project. But Warner Brothers did come to me when it was a book oh. and I read all the books, devoured them. And, you know, ended up in Confessions of a Shopaholic. So I have no, I mean, believe me, I'm not, I mean, it's not like I'm Susan Sontag sitting here having this conversation with you. I just, I'm just interested because. Well, she that, also, it's a complicated story. But you know what I'm too. saying. But you know what I'm saying. Just, so that's all, because I just think it's interesting that you've had these two, these two very different careers. And I'm sure you do turn down a lot of stuff. I mean, that would make total sense. But also, somebody could say, well, Wally, as a Marxist, there's this film or that film that you did do, which really you shouldn't have done. And there are a couple in there that I'm I'm actually ashamed of having done. I'm dying you, to ask you which ones they know, are, but, but I won't. But, but uh, there, there are a couple that I didn't really realize at the time what they were going to be like or or somebody could say you did realize and you just wanted the money uh and i would say well i don't think i really realized marxists need to eat well right but i mean in other words i i think and some people could say which could be a title of your autobiography could be you would you would not do a commercial for an organization that made guided missiles we can accept that that is right. part of that and to keep things balanced out, I want you to know that I am now a regular on a, on a on a show called uh, animated series called Future Worms. So, and it's just and and I have to tell you, doing something like Yo Gabba Gabba or an a- animated series for kids is and it's not a huge amount of money on something like that. But to have that audience, to be adding that audience, to walk into a restaurant and have some little kid go Gabba Gabba, or to see is there's something kind of kind of delightful about that. I do, well, I mean, I do enjoy thinking particularly of uh, 
elderly people who watch a lot of television, who are shut-ins or in hospitals or nursing homes and are entertained by what I do. I like that. Sure. It's nice. And I I don't... uh, I mean, I don't have kids. I don't understand kids, but I, I, I accept the fact that they're out there. I guess and, uh, <laughs> you, can't, everywhere. you can't really avoid that. They're everywhere, uh, Wally. And I, I, if they, uh, you know, I, I hope that what I do isn't harmful to them. Oh my God! How could it be harmful? You entertain them. I mean, I, 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 I'm obviously. I do uh, seek a comfortable bourgeois life, so the temptation to deceive myself is there, obviously, to say, well, this isn't that bad. Uh, Why not just do it? so is it more of a conflict between your Marxist beliefs and your and your lifestyle choice? Is that more of a is that more of a conflict for you than say the Writing when you're able to let's say do Uncle Vanya, do check off, do Master Builder, and then balance it with doing these smaller parts that are more commercial. That's probably is that that's an easier. Well, I don't think. Uh, I mean, I don't think Marx uh, felt that individuals should uh, not drink a good cup of coffee. They should all drink bad coffee. I don't think that was his main point. I mean, I think. What he is thought- it to you? I think for our listeners, like, and and I'm going to say this too, when when people hear you say that, and there are some people that recoil because Marxism has for some people a, you know, a meaning that's that, that doesn't appeal to them. Um, when you say, like my husband's grandfather was Marxist. When you say. And his father, too. When you say, I'm a Marxist, what does that mean to Wally Shawn? Right. Well, the truth is, I I don't think it's really appropriate to name yourself after somebody else. No, but, but you said it, but so I, I'm just picking but, up but on But, it. I mean, it's a shorthand that people might understand. To me, it means... Uh, I feel that the the way the society is organized and the world is organized is unjust and wrong. And I don't actually think that the people who uh, run the world, the 1%, are superior. So why is their life so much easier than the people who are sleeping on the street in India. It, it, it isn't really because they're superior. And if it isn't because they're superior, what's the justification for it? There isn't one. Uh, so I think if I say I'm a Marxist, I mean that I think that uh, the injustice should be changed uh, that the way that we live is is wrong. It's not about uh, yes. Ultimately, perhaps, if society changed sufficiently, there wouldn't be a class of people who ride first class, and another class of people who ride 
coach. Uh, that might be true, but it isn't. I don't think Marx was saying each individual should change society by taking a coach seat instead of a first-class seat and saving $900 to spend on something else. I mean, I don't... I, I, that wasn't the point of Marx. I think it's about outrage at injustice. And how about if we... And I and, and this then I, it takes me in my head back to what you said earlier when you were a young boy and you went to India, where there's probably more injustice in terms of the way people live than almost anywhere on the globe. No middle class, essentially, yeah. Well, there's now a middle class, but there's still but 750. I mean, the you're talking about, you know, well, you know being friends of, of the Maharajas well, and the yeah. like there and then seeing <laughs> such uh, such abject poverty in the streets. So it would seem <laughs> that there, there were greater extremes in India, especially at the, at the beginnings of... Of your your visits, I would think. Well, I mean, it's you know the, the extremes still exist. I think they exist even on a higher scale. You know, the most expensive privately owned home in the world it belongs to a man called Bonnie, who lives in a billion dollar home. Yeah. So, which is in, in which is in Bombay. So, um, you know, I, I, and there's still 750 million people that they can count. So that you know, then you can probably tack on another 150 million people they've left off, who live at the poverty level below the poverty. I mean, and poverty level for India is very different than poverty level in the West. So, yeah, I mean, it's gotten better because there is a middle class, but their middle class compared to our middle class is also, when you go back to, I, I, when you go back to a driver's house, and I always, I always want to go back and see where people live. I always, it's always been, I've always wanted to, you know, it's just something I do. And, um, and you go to someone who's a driver, which is a middle class job. Now, that's a good job. You can have a refrigerator, you can have a roof over your head that's a real roof. Well, that's one room with five people still. I mean, it's not, I mean, their middle class is still very different than what we perceive. So, yes, it's better, but it's still, you know, all over. Yeah, I, I, I mean, if we're going to talk about this, I would say it's uh, the United States as the most powerful country is, uh, is, is responsible for a lot of the uh, poverty in the world, and we prevent change all over the world. We prevent the people who would like to change things from being able to change them. And in, it's in that way, we in this small room are beneficiaries of the injustice, the cheap oil, the cheap textiles, whatever it is, are benefiting us and we would not be living in the nice way that we're living in a more just world and and the wars you know sure i protested you might say and walked in the streets against the iraq war but the cheap oil that bush wanted we have and it benefits me so bush even though I criticized him, was working really for me, and I'm still getting the benefit of it this afternoon. So, uh, you know, we're involved in that story. You can say that, you know, and, and whatever America's involved in India. But when you also look at India, 
You have to look. There's and you can look at all sorts of places. You can look at South America, and then we get into this whole other big net of things where things fall into, which your belief system, I would imagine, backs up. But you get into the caste system. So no matter what you do in India, until you remove something like the caste system, I don't know how you ever take it. A society, you know, oil or no oil, you've got a caste system. Oil or no oil, you have the Catholic Church responsible for so much of the world they don't believe in birth control. I mean, as long as there's so many, you know, there's so many problems that, yes, we are a problem, but then there are so many global problems that we don't control like that. That's something sure. that when you travel, you see that the endless babies being born that people can't take care of, that education and health care and, and, you know, that there's just so many third world problems that we've done a lot of bad things, but then there's this whole other set of problems that we don't do. Well, that we're not, that we're there long before us. The caste system's been there long before America was even a country. True. No, I mean, <laughs> you know? I mean that's something that we'll never get rid of, at least in our lifetime. I cannot see it happening. Well, it may happen or it may not happen. Not in my lifetime, I doubt. But... Uh, well, I'm not far behind you, Wally, so... I, I mean, I think uh, it's sort of interesting to think of the crimes committed by other people and it's you know enjoyable too but i think uh you know people say well why do you you know get angry at israel or, or why don't you get angry at you know the way the chinese behave it's because I am an American, and I have some influence over Israel, and I have very little influence over the way the Chinese behave. So, yes, it's interesting to read about the bad things the Chinese do, but I think it's usually more uh, helpful to the world to think about the bad things that you yourself do that you can do something about. Do you think that perhaps a, a place to begin might be to adjust the way we finance our elections, that the whole Citizens United, the idea of unlimited financing from, you know, the richest portion of the world towards financing a political, uh, it, it makes no sense to me. It's, it seems like it was a, a dastardly mistake at a Supreme Court level. Well, I think it's horrifying, but if people in this country were better educated, uh, the money that is spent on ridiculous political ads would have no power. Yeah. I mean, I'm not influenced by the ridiculous political ads. No, but in, ads. in the interim, I think that by the time <laughs> you, 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 you know, if you follow that assumption that, you know, you can educate people past being influenced by, by advertising, I think that it, it sets the, the potential goal that we're seeking so far off. And it's an easier fix to say, wait a minute, let's take away the capacity to throw hundreds of millions of dollars at a candidate. Yes, let's do both. I mean, let's educate yeah, exactly. our children. And let's, uh, you know, uh, spend, spend, spend on on education, which, of course, the rich and the powerful don't want because they like an ignorant uh, population. And let's also take the money out of politics, of course, and repeal Citizens United. And obviously, the, uh, you know, the Supreme Court... People are are uh, most of them uh, 
I don't know. I assume they're not literally corrupt, so they they just happen to be freakishly devoted to the uh, corporate uh, industrial military complex. Yeah. I don't know. How do you think Donald Trump has gotten so far ahead in the polls? Well, people. I mean, I asked a a. I met a guy. Uh, from Haiti the other day, and he's telling me how much he liked Donald Trump. And uh, in a discreet way, I I said, "Well, you like him. He doesn't. He he would throw you out of the country." Uh, and the guy said, "I know, but uh, he says what he thinks, and the other people are lying." And uh, I said, "But." He would start wars, and we'd all be fighting in horrible wars. And he said, yeah, that's true, but he he says what he feels, and everybody else is lying. And that's, I think, you know— uh, He's entertaining. You know, it's a—well, hor- I mean, there's a kind of thin line between entertaining— And Tourette's. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think— He's totally unedited. What? He has no filter. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's I mean, no self-editing I, at all. You're this right. Is a, I mean, it's a question. I wonder: in, <laughs> is not having a filter and being authentic the same thing? I don't know because you wonder if he always means everything he says when he says it. Oh, I, I, I loved I loved Oscar Levant, but I wouldn't vote him into office. I mean, I loved the, his unedited whatever he thought he said. It was outrageous. It was brilliant. It was it was scary. But I sure as hell wouldn't vote to put him in office. Well, it's one thing if you're an entertainer. It's another thing if you're running for office. I mean, I don't think people expect the same things. I, or now has that line been blurred? See, that's what I fear is because of reality TV and all this. There's a line that's been blurred between entertainment and politics. Well, I think uh, if I had to vote between the two, I think, you know, Trump is is uh, an expression of—, of uh, you know, anger uh, being turned against the weak, which people love. And Oscar Levant was, <laughs> uh, you know, a, a uh, complicated and tortured man. But I would definitely vote for Oscar Levant. No, he, of course he, not. He is uh, – Oscar Levant was a profound guy. And I, I, I don't him. know if he should be president <laughs> He would be erratic, obviously, but yeah, of course. But uh, they're very—I don't know—the people who are in office are are so. Uh, uh, I don't know what screwed up uh, standard of dignity they follow, but uh, I wouldn't be upset if you said, uh, "Well, Oscar Levant is." Uh, He's going to be president. Might not be bad. <laughs> that would be interesting. He's room temperature, so it's not going to happen. He's passed away many years ago. But I, I just, I mean, as a teenager, I mean, as 13, 14, 15, I, I had no real intellectual connection. And yet I was 
fascinated by him. And Absolutely. It was, it was just, I, you I knew. wanted to know him. I wanted to be like him. Did you I ever wanted, meet him? Did I never, never met him. I never met him. And I, and I just, I remember, I mean, as close as I came as in the late 60s, I worked for Mort Saul for a while. Really? And we were very heavily, yeah, as an improvisational actor and helping to write a little bit. And we were, everything was about Mark Lane and Rush to Judgment and trying to get the Warren Commission, you know, exposed as what we believed it was. And, and, uh, and I'm sure it was. But, uh, but I missed Oscar event by a, by a decade so unfortunate this has been wonderful wally what a treat well uh now you know we wrote this book called gratitude and trust and and, and in closing here today because we're trying to somehow they took our gratitude and trust name away but we're still trying to yeah invoke a little bit of gratitude right. what's wally sean grateful for after all of this conversation well, I mean, I, it's all... In his daily life, like when you look around. Well, I mean, I have happened... I mean, I happen to have had... You know, I've been very blessed and had uh, uncanny good luck so far. Obviously, uh, well, it's going to get worse. But so far, I've been blessed and uh, I am appropriately grateful, I would say. Uh, it's nobody's business in a way, but I I am uh, I've been so fortunate, and people have been so nice to me that I literally cannot keep up in thanking people. And I there are people who've done beautiful things for me that I just have forgotten and haven't ever thanked for the beautiful thing they did. It's piled up to such an extent. There is, there's a lovely moment, since we started talking about, about my dinner with Andre, there's a lovely moment towards the end of my dinner with Andre when I think you express gratitude in a, in a really unique and lovely way. You talk about the fact that it's almost enough for you to get up next to your beloved in the morning in the, 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 and you go to your cup of coffee and if your coffee is there and it's the coffee that you love, it's it's just a wonderful speech where you're talking about being being fulfilled by really simple things in your life and being grateful for them. I don't know if you remember this speech. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. although there's an element of uh, the Wally character that I play in that movie is... is uh, uh, to some extent, being critiqued, uh, his love of the bourgeois life is comfort. Uh, and comfort is uh, is up for scrutiny, and uh, so for me personally, not as the character, that is all true of me. Uh, but there's also, uh, I, I, I also am somewhat aware of how I got to have that uh, nice life, which I don't really think is justified. It's, I'm the beneficiary of an unjust system, and I really enjoy it. And I've, I've been very, very, very fortunate. Um, but I still would probably uh, 
vote to dismantle the system if if uh, if it were possible. I mean, I think it is possible. Yeah. A better world actually is possible. But I mean, I it'll be most of my life is over. So uh I've gotten away with murder if you want to look at it that way. I mean, if you count the Vietnamese and Iraqis as people I've murdered, which is fairly easy to demonstrate. Well, you know, in recovery, we have a very simple, simple process of, to, to, to move forward in our lives. We remain in, in love and service. Our sixth affirmation in the book, Gratitude and Trust, is I will live my life in gratitude and trust, in love and service, gratitude and trust. And I think that 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 you are, in fact, you know, even in expressing these views today about the system and about the the injustices, you know, you're you're performing a service, and you certainly there's love and service in the work you've done through the years and all. And you know, I'm 75. I'm I'm. It's about three years older than three or four years older than you. That's unbelievable. And I am convinced that there is lots and lots and lots of wonderful stuff ahead for both of us. You know. Oh, that's great. Well, gosh, I, uh, yeah, no, I, I. I'm an older man, so you have to bow to my wisdom. <laughs> I'm, and you're, a, you're an, an older Trekian. An, an older <laughs> Trekian, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for well, coming. Well, Wally, in. Sean, thank you for coming in and. You've given a lot of, despite whatever you may think, you've given a lot of people a lot of pleasure over the years, and that's and that's giving back to society in a big way. Well, I'm, I mean, if I've given pleasure to people, this is absolutely fantastic. I'm in favor of it. This wasn't too unpleasant, was it? This was absolutely lovely. lovely. I, I uh, absolutely. Thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, uh, you've enjoyed the 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 wit and wisdom and and and. Uh, an, an hour-plus conversation with the remarkable Wally Sean. That's Tracy Jackson sitting across from me. And uh, I'm Paulie Willis. I'll talk to you next time. You give a little love and it all comes back to you. You know you're going to be remembered for the things that you say and do. Say and